Hey, but listen, we're looking to change ourselves. So if you can't become obedient to who you are and who you're trying to change to be, you know, and you know, the, the request that you make for yourself to, you know, stay to, to stay obedient to, if you, if you can't do that, you, you don't want to change. Hey, what's going on is your host, Tolu Oyemi doing the most. Let's get to it. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at T-O-L-U dot O-W-O-Y-E-M-I. Now back to the episode. Hey, hello, my masterminders. We got another fascinating episode in the start right now. We got Josh D. Brown Sr., man. Welcome to the show, man. Thanks. Welcome. I welcome you um, in this journey that I have, and I really do appreciate you for allowing me to come on here and to share a little bit about myself. Seems like, you know, from talking before, you've already, you know, a little more than what most people do. So um, welcome to the journey, and I'm thankful to be here with you. Yeah, nah, I think, you know, it's so interesting the, the way your story um, evolved as time went on and how, you know, now you're on a mission to positively impact other people's lives. And I think, you know, the greatest people in life have the deepest scars. And... It helps us in so many different ways. But for people that, you know, may not know about you or your story, kind of tell us about your background and uh, some of the things you went through and how you became to become who you are right now. Well, I started out as um, just an, an average kid in a small town. Um, I grew up in a town called Shepherdstown in the state of West Virginia. And I like to say, man, I, I grew up in a town where it really says it takes a village to raise, raise a child because... I grew up where everybody really took care of everybody. Everybody looked out for everybody. And I come from um, a family of athletes. So in a, as a young age, I'd always would travel with my godfather and numerous family members. And we would watch sports. And I became, I'd say, man, just overtaken by the thought of sports, um, competition, wanting to get better. And just as over time in life, it just became, I really believe, um, it really became a who I was. Like I became sport, a sport. I became an athlete. I became a competitor. And that drove me in life to just want to always win. And in the course of, you know, doing that, I excelled a lot. But then at the same time, I told you I grew up in a small town. And I seen a lot and, and I seen some adults, you know, drinking when I was really young. And But I also seen them having a lot of fun and it enticed me at a young age to want to know what that fun was and why they, you know, had so much fun. And, it, and I seen them drinking. So it was like, OK, well, when they drink, they have fun. They party, they laugh, they smile. So it made me want to try it. And at the age of 12, I took my first drink. And I actually took my first drink at 12 walking to school. And as you can imagine, as 12 years old, when you drink a beer, I mean, you, you're pretty, pretty much intoxicated. Um, I was only probably about 110 pounds. You know, I drank a beer and I actually made it throughout the day. So the problem was, is that when I did that, it became something that I wanted to continue to do because, A, I wanted to have fun like my family. I looked up to my stepdad, but also I wanted to see if I could continue to get away with it. And I did, and it created, and it created something that I call as the invisible man, where I thought that I was invisible to things, that things would 
that I could do whatever I wanted to and there would be no consequences because I was able to be, uh, be very sneaky, that I could um, get away with it. And it just set a bad mindset throughout the course of life. And I, I continued that into middle school. I continued into high school. I, I remember my junior and senior year, I don't remember a football game or track meet where I wasn't either intoxicated or hot. Um, and I was still very successful. So then it carried on to college where in college, I was the leading receiver for two out of three years. Um, we went to the playoffs. We won a game in the playoffs. So we were successful, but I was still drinking. Um, I was drinking a lot more in college than I was in, in course in middle school and high school, but then I was still successful. Um, and that carried on into my adult life. After I graduated from high school, I became a, um, I coached college football for a small stint. I coached high school football. I coached middle school basketball. I coached high school track. I was a supervisor at FedEx. So I was I was very productive as far as in my profession. And I was doing a lot of different things. But yeah, I still had that alcoholic mindset, that alcoholic habit that was still um, instilled in me. And until about 27 is when my life changed because I carried that same mentality, the same habit, the same thirst, the same want from 12 all the way to 27. But when I was 27, I left a football game and I was in an accident, a tragic accident where I wrecked my car. Um, it was probably around seven, eight o'clock at night on a Saturday, November 1st. And I was flown to a hospital in Virginia. I live in West Virginia. It was probably like a 10 minute flight or a 45 minute drive on a helicopter. They lost me twice. At the wow. scene of the accident, my heart stopped. Then my heart stopped again on the way on the helicopter. I had emergency surgery. I ended up surviving. As you can see, I'm here. But the man that I had that I hit, the head-on collision, he didn't survive. And how old was this man? He was 87. He was a surviving veteran. He, you know, living a great life. He was him, his wife, and his dog, um, Snowball. He didn't, he didn't make it. So as you can imagine, um, there was repercussions to my actions. And I ended up serving three years in the state penitentiary on a DUI causing death. I had a two to 10 year sentence. I didn't make parole the first time, which is my second year. The third time I ended up making parole. And that's just pretty much who I am in my background is this is a very striving athlete who was, you know, beginning stages of addiction to heavily involved in addiction and graduating and then being in the professional world thinking that you know i'm a functional alcoholic i can continue to do this i can go to work and i can do these things different things but then i had a, I, something happened to me that i never would thought happened was i wrecked because throughout the times of me partying like that i was always the, the driver i wasn't the, the designated driver i was the drunk driver and everybody said that i was a really um good drunk driver so um I just never thought that this would be my situation, but you take life as it comes and you learn and you grow, you accept the things that are good. You accept the things that are bad. You learn from both and you just continue to push on. And that's how I'm here today, you know, sharing my story with you. Yeah. And it's awesome, you know, to go through and see that light at the end of the tunnel, because, you know, people go through things every single day and, a lot of times people are never able to recover. You know, they're, that's it, this is life. Sometimes people commit suicide, sometimes they take their lives, sometimes, you know, they kind of just rot in a, in a dark corner somewhere. But for you to be able to transform all of this into a message that you can then use, 
you know, to impact people across the world, what, what does that mean to you? Um, well, when you say that, let's just say, um, after my accident, I suffered for depression. Obviously I was stressed. I had suicidal thoughts. Um, I felt unworthy. I felt that I didn't deserve to be here. And once I got to prison and was able to accept prison, accept what it is that I did and focused on like moving forward in life is when I seen purpose. And honestly, I do go speak um, for various schools, students and student athletes. And my purpose in that came from being in prison. I actually was in a rehab in prison and I became the coordinator of it. And one day they asked me and said, hey, will you go speak at this school? Well, I'm thinking, okay, I get McDonald's, you know, I don't have to have no shackles. They're going to let me go to a school. I get out. Yeah, of course. So I got there and, and I'm speaking in front of like 1200 kids. It was the first time I ever spoke publicly. And I'm thinking like, man, what, what am I going to talk to these people about? Like, they're just going to see these prisoners. And actually it went really well. But the entire time that I was speaking, I, it was the beginning stage of me healing. And when I felt like that, I felt like I was healing as I was, you know, releasing these things and, and giving these kids lessons, I felt like, man, this is something that I want to do. And it became something that it just, it's hard for me to let go of. Like, I just, I just feel like this is my purpose. I remember because again, I was coaching football when I was in this accident, high school. And I would always say after my accident, while I was out on bail and when I went into prison, like, how would I ever coach again? How am I ever going to impact these kids? Like I used to love, I used to say the thing, I used to tell everybody, do it for the kids. And that was really my motivation. I didn't coach for wins or losses. I didn't coach to live, you know, to fulfill my dream. I, I, I was very accomplished as an athlete, but I did it for the kids because I enjoy seeing them smile. I enjoy seeing them, you know, achieve their goals. And that's when I realized that me speaking was, that's how I was going to coach. That's how I was going to answer the call of coaching and impact lives was through my story, speaking to kids. So once I started that day, it's just been something that I just can't live without. I have to honor Mr. Nelson Robinson when I do that. Like every time I step on a stage, I honor his life mm. because I took a life that I can't give back. But at the same time, I bring life to him when I do speak. So this whole thing became a purpose-driven thing and it marked off multiple things in life that I thought that I would never get back. And it was just something that was just placed inside, in me, on me, to me, and through me. And it's just, it's just a way of life to me at this point. Got you. And it's interesting, you know, I bet some people still call you this, but you know, you were known as Slope, you know, yeah. you know, back in the days, yo, Slope, yo, let's, how did, uh, who was, when you look back at Slope, in your current uh frame of mind what are your thoughts on him or like how would uh you have maybe gone in the past to talk to him i would tell slope you're a hell of an athlete but your accomplishments doesn't take away your consequences see i was so accomplished in sports that i did get away with a lot of things but that was just like high school, middle school, and in college. And then, but I took that mentality into my adult life. And I never had the moment to understand that, man, it's just a game. 
that too shall pass. You have to grow up. You have to start making decisions. That's going to better impact your future, your family's future, your child's future, your friend's future. And that's what I wasn't doing. I was, I was just living life so recklessly and so free because, you know, I went to school, I graduated, I got my degree. Um, I was successful in my, in my profession and Slope just thought that he was invisible. Like I stated before, and that I, I think I needed at the time for somebody to, for one, to explain to me what I could have done with my talent at the time. You know, I knew I was talented, but I didn't know the level that I could have taken my talent because I was I was just happy with the wins. I didn't know that there was another level and I didn't even care about the other level because after the win, let's party. Mm. I didn't care that there was another level to go reach beyond the wins to be great. You know, that's why I never considered myself great. I consider myself very good and uh, accomplished, but I wasn't great because I didn't go the extra mile. The extra mile was overtaken with alcohol and addiction. Got it. And one thing that's interesting is how you kind of took slope and you transformed it into this acronym uh, that you're using now. And, you know, S for, for strategy and strategize. And that's so key. You know, when you think about strategy, it's like an outline. It's a step-by-step -step plan to a certain goal. Talk to us about strategy and, and why that's so important to you now. Because like, okay, I look at it like this. I looked at life. I put life in the concept of me coaching football. Mm -hmm. And I know that, okay, Monday through Thursday, we game plan. I watch film. And I watched the team, you know, against this set and this set and what I could and couldn't do. So then, you know, I came up with a plan for that. That Okay, if this happens, this is what I can do. And then, you know, after that game, I break down what we did wrong. And then I'm able to implement into the next thing. And then it was like, yo, like I really took time throughout the week to strategize how to get wins and, and wins, how to get more wins than losses. But in life, I never strategized what it is I wanted. I never had goals. I never, you know, I never looked past the day. Mm. And, you know, I literally just lived. Like, I woke up, okay, if I got practice, I got practice. If I got a game, I got a game. I got to go to work, I got to go to work. Let me just do what I'm supposed to do. It became just a, reg a regular routine. But when we sit down and we strategize in life, like where does we want to go? Like how many of us make a vision board? Like that, that that's so huge. I think it's, it's such a great thing to do. How many people of us sit here? I know, listen, New Year's Eve resolutions, I don't do them. I don't like them because we get so hyped up for like a week before then, we, you know, we were hyped for the week of and then after that are gone because there's really normally no goal, no, no dates, no anything beyond that week so like when i started looking at everything that i was successful in, I, I had a strategy so i set a goal when i set a goal I, I set a date um and the date i may set a goal in january but the end may be september so yeah. okay how do i get from a to z do i celebrate my small wins inside of that long journey to be able to not just look at it as a journey but just look at it as just something that i have to do something that i must do but it brings me joy inside of it when i'm able to celebrate the small wins within my strategy i mean if i want to write a book okay um how many chapters do i have want to have okay i write down some, a chapter an outline when do i want to get it done like it was a strategy so i just fuck in life when we want to change 
when we want to get out of depression, when we want to get out of suicidal thoughts, we have to come up with a strategy, a plan, because something's always going to come to knock us off the road. But if I don't have a strategy and a plan to execute, I'm not going to have any way to get back on the railroad track. It's just going to keep derailing down that path that that we set once we knocked ourselves off. So I just believe a strategy is so huge in life and all things. And it could be something small rather than something big. But everything we do, we need to come up with a strategy. If you said you want to come to West Virginia, fly from Africa to come see me, your strategy would be okay when you're getting your flight, what airline you're flying in, what time you get there, when you need a hotel, when you need a rental. It's, it's a strategy. That's so right. in life, we have to be able to do that in order to get through things enjoy things and get the fullness of it because when you strategy you you really think you really put your mind to test and as your mind thinks as your mind is as your thoughts are as your mouth goes as you talk so are you so you really dig deeper and it is when you do when you sit down and break down a strategy mm. Mm, I, I love that. And I love the fact that you're, you're talking about breaking it down and setting goals and just being able to be uh, accountable towards what it is that you uh, wrote. Now, you, you, you talk about leverage and le le <laughs> leveraging your, your strength and kind of I, I, I feel like the word leverage is really misunderstood or if people do understand it they often understand a glimpse of it they don't really have a true to you what what does leverage mean and how have you learned to use it well when i took leverage i i used it as setting myself up in a position to win mm. setting my i'm leveraging i'm leveraging myself to move forward so it's it's something that's going to catapult me forward in my mindset in my actions in my thoughts um, leverage is literally, literally is keeping, of using whatever you have to place you on top and to stay there. That's deep. I, I like that. So, you know, RSAT, right? And the RSAT program that was in uh, prison. And even, you know, one thing you mentioned in the book was like, somebody had to stay four months before they became a leader or coordinator, but you were able yeah. to do that half the time. How did rsat like when you first saw it you were what did you say to yourself like uh, i don't know about this or were you like man like i would love to jump into this opportunity well listen here's the thing when you go to prison you have something called an ripp and that is given to you and it's giving you like your, your your level of what your security is and it gives you a set of suggested classes well the only class that was on my ripp was rsat residential substance abuse treatment so i knew in order for me to make parole i gotta i gotta complete this course but i didn't think that i was an addict because our set is really filled with a lot of people who's on heroin and you know crack cocaine and meth and things of that nature and i'm like okay i'm just a little old guy who drinks alcohol which you can get from the store it's legal you pull me over and if i don't have the bottle open or you come to my house it's legal so i really fought it for a while but then it was okay it's getting time for me to go home so it's like i pushed to get in the into the program and once I got into the program, um, I really didn't want to be there. In the first day, I, you know, they asked you to introduce yourself, say a little bit about yourself. And I just stood up and I talked, but I didn't know that the, the administrator uh, leader was behind me. Mm. And when I spoke, I really impressed him. And then right after we broke group, the coordinator at the time came up to me. He was like, you know what, Brown? He was like, I was kind of, you know, not about you because he knew I didn't want to be there. 
And then he was like, but you really impressed Marsh. And I'm like, what you talking about? He was like, Marsh heard you talk. And then he was like, I guarantee you'll be the next coordinator. So wow. he, the dude named Nizer, he, he left at the two month mark. And they had talked to me about it before. And I was like, ah, oh, you know, I don't want, because I want to step on nobody's toes. Prison is about respect. You know, people want this job because it's the highest paying job in there. You run the entire program. It's an inmate driven ran program. The, the, the administrative leaders, they just make sure that we have all the necessary resources to do what we have to do. And he came to me and was like, you know, fill out an application. I fill out an application and sure enough at the, I think it was the two, yeah, the two month mark and you have to be like level four. And I was a coordinator at like level two or level three. I don't remember which one. So I was really just put into that position based off my ability to speak and them hear me when I didn't even know that they were listening. Wow 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 that's and well another thing that's interesting is you know you, you from school high school you had division one cincinnati kind of you know pull you in but then that first week you uh left to go back because hey you know your girl is pregnant you just we want to be a good dad but when you got there apparently you learned that hey look she did not chose not to have the baby and chose to have an abortion how did that time period from first receiving the news to going to uh, cincinnati could you kind of describe that uh almost like a roller coaster ride well the cincinnati thing was very was very weird because they were i went there on a football scholarship but i was recruited for track what happened was and I think like May, we went to state track meet. I ran a good time. Uh, their track coach called me and was like, I want to fly you out. Well, my high school coach for football told me I didn't have the grades to even go division one. And I was like, oh, I don't have the grades. And he was like, you've got the grades in the test score since your junior year. And I'm like, what? He was like, yeah, I'm looking at your stuff. I'm trying to fly you out. So he flies me out there. And my mind says, okay, once I get out here, just let me give the, let me just give the film to the football coach. So when I get out there, I was like, hey, can you give this film to the football coach? I was out there for a track visit. I was out there for like two days. He gave the the the, the film to the football coach before I got on the plane. When I landed, which was probably about a 45 minutes or an hour flight, he called me and offered me a full ride. Wow. And then, so then I had to turn around within like three weeks and go to Cincinnati. So like, I didn't have that long drawn out um recruitment as most kids do like over the year going to visit schools going to that because my coach told me that i wasn't eligible so my mindset was i was going to go to a junior college or prep school so i really didn't even care to be in a division one school um it wasn't a big thing to me and i didn't want to be at cincinnati before i went there i only went because they were the school that that stayed connected with me to through track like so when I went there, it was just like, okay, I had the scholarship. I had no choice to just go. So it was like the second or third night I got the phone call and was like, Josh, I'm pregnant. And it's like, and I pondered it. I talked to a couple, um, my best friends back home. I talked to a couple teammates and like, I knew the feeling as a kid, you know, growing up without a dad. And I was like, okay, I don't want my son to grow up in this way. And, you know, a lot of people don't even know, but when I left Cincinnati, I left with the thought process that I was going to go transfer to WVU, West Virginia University. So I didn't just quit Cincinnati and leave and think, okay, I'm just giving up football together. No, it's like, okay, I'll take some time off 
because West Virginia offered me was was going to offer me a scholarship, but my head coach told me I wasn't eligible, so they actually gave it to somebody else. And then when I found out I was eligible, they offered for me to walk on, and then they would scholarship me the rest of my time there. So I said, okay, well I'm good. I can go back to WVU. But when I left Cincinnati, I didn't I didn't know that there was no way I could get through the Big East non transfer rule which forever stopped me from going to WVU. So once I had quit and came back home, once she had said that she had an abortion and I started to go like trying to get into the WVU, that's when everything hit me. It's like, oh, you messed up. Mm. Like, because your plan was to leave there, but go here, but now you can't even go there. You already quit there, so you're just stuck. So I had to sit out of school for like a year to get eligible and things like that. But um, the roller coaster was, um, it was hard. I think like the first three months of that was a hard transition because some 90% of the people in my life are just going to learn the story when they read my book. Everybody thought, oh, he was homesick. He was ready to come home. He couldn't cut it. He got in a fight. I just let everybody talk because I didn't care. You know, I knew why I left. My mother knew why I left. Um, and that's all that mattered to me. But it was a it was hard. It was a roller coaster. And then in fact, you know, sift through what I'm going to do, how I'm going to go, go to my next school. But it was like that was probably my very first experience of like having to deal with pain because everything else prior to that in high school and junior high was just all pure joy for me. I, I mean, just like outside of ha having a father, but I've learned over years to compartmentalize that. But you know, that situation, her doing that. Um, yeah it was it was hard and how did she when you kind of confronted her or you maybe spoke to her about it how did she rationalize things and was it kind of like a separation from there i don't think really i had a fair i don't think me and her had a fair conversation um a respectful conversation for me to like years after um because it was more so of something like she thought that she was doing something was best for us, but didn't include me in it. Um, she denied it for like a while that she even like had the abortion. And, you know, like I have a friend, I had a very close friend that I had went to school with who was talking to one of her friends and told me like, yo, go back to Cincinnati. She's not pregnant. And I'm asking like, are you pregnant? Whatever's like, yeah. And then actually one day I went to go to her house and there was a letter saying that, you know, blah, 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 whatever. She had to go to the hospital. And I'm like, oh, your bid's made. Like, I don't look like that happened. And then that's when I started to really ask questions. And that's when she, you know, tried to say she had a miscarriage, but it later came out that she had an abortion and just didn't tell me until after I had confronted her because one of her friends told somebody that I was cool with, which told me, he was like, hey, well, what's going on? And so, like, she didn't even just come out and say, hey, listen, I got an abortion, go back to school, nothing. It lingered for weeks. And that's what really stopped me from going to Cincinnati was because there was such a lapse in between like two or three weeks that I was going through this before I was even say, hey, can I come back at that point? They probably already awarded my scholarship to somebody else and it was too late for that. Got you. And do you think that she had it because she felt like maybe now was not the time in life? You're going off to go play football. She's by herself and maybe parents are kind of like, hey, you don't want to have that now. You know, people talk in people's ears and do you think she kind of like reasoned herself into that? This happened in 2006 and in 2021. Um, I'm not for sure I can really even answer that question. Um, I know we've talked once or I mean twice about it. I mean, it's always been a sticky situation. Um, I still communicate with her, um, you know, just on a friend level. 
Um, but that is a conversation we really don't talk about. I know she said that basically, you know, she felt that she wasn't ready to have a child. And she thought that she was doing what was best. I was just like, okay, well, I should have been included. But it took us years to get to the point to where we could have that conversation. Like, it took a while for us to get to where we could have sat down. And then I still don't think we've had what we should have on that conversation. It's kind of like I moved on in life. You know, I did whatever I did. Um, I lived a full life as far as in my athletic ability and my athletic career that I don't really like, I don't hate her or, you know, I'm mad that it, it happened because everything's happens for a reason. Um, but yeah, I just, we, I just, I couldn't answer like, really. I don't think I know truthfully what she thought or what she felt, to be honest with you. Got you, got you. And that's interesting, you know, because it leads or it leaves you to kind of make, have a couple of assumptions, but at the end of the day, that person truly knows what it is that they were thinking now um when you first entered prison you know you you, you know everybody paints prison like oh man like you know you're gonna get jammed up tough guys you know you know and all kinds of situations happening but you were you were able to meet banks and you were able to meet shooter can, can you tell us about those guys and kind of like how your relationship with banks kind of uh blossomed and how that helped you through you know that that journey uh, of incarceration well before you go to prison you go to jail and when i went to jail first i actually ran into one two three four four people that was in the same pot as me so i want to say there's probably like 60 some people in the pot i had met four people that i either grew up with went to school with in high school or just knew for a long time so that they made that transition easy for me now when I went to prison, I met I met Banks. Actually, I met Banks the first day because he was in the state shop, which is where when you pull up, they take you to to get your clothes. They fit it. You know, he's like, hey, man, you know, just hit me. Listen, if you wear 42s, you should wear these. And, you know, and, you know, just like he just seemed like a pretty stand up type of guy, you know, like my character. Antana was like, OK, he's cool. And then just, you know, over time, you know, I ended up moving into the same dorm he was because you have to do go through like. I want to say the first 30 to 60 days, you have to be on a behavior unit where, you know, you're in, you're on this unit. So after I transitioned out is when I met him. And then, you know, we click with sports, we click with life, we click with, listen, we would literally just walk around and just say a random quote. And we're like, yo, that's the quote of the day, or, you know, I got to. Um, and then we would try to duel each other with who could come up with the best quotes. Um, so we started cooking together. He became like my brother, honestly. Um, I actually became closer to him than I was with my real brother on the street. Brothers, it's like at any given time in life, like, and you know, we just talked about you know what we did to mess up, you know, what we need to do to to get out of there. He had a mandatory discharge, so he was never facing parole. He had to serve his full sentence. But like, it was just good to have somebody that you could just feed off of and, and want to grow. Like, we started playing ball together. We would umpire softball games, we play softball games. So literally it was like where there was brown, there was banks, and where there was banks, there was brown. And that was just who I chose to hang out with. And it helped my time. It helped, you know, have enjoy because he liked what I liked. So if I watched him on TV, I can go holler at you. Did you watch this or did you watch that? Or if I had to go to work, he's like, yo, this happened. So like he literally like it was really like my homie. Uh, my homie, my brother, and you know, I'm still in touch with him today. I actually talked to him the other day and I told him he didn't even know I wrote about him in the book. And he was like, well, when do I do my book? Because he bought a pre-sale book. And I was like, listen, just heads up, you're in the book. And he was like, for real? And I was like, yeah. 
Um, so he was like somebody, he really helped my time. Like he really helped my time go past because like, I didn't dread prison because I had somebody that like, I literally connected with and was able to just talk about life. But like, we literally talked about everything from as a being a, if we could remember what we were like when we were born, we wouldn't have, you know what I mean? All the way up to the present day, we discussed it. Just, you know, what am I going to do when I get out of here? What should I do? Home plans, should I stay here? Everything. So he was a staple to my to my mental stability when I was locked up. And from what I remember, I think he was also supposed to publish a book as well. Yeah, he talked, he, he talked about writing a book. He hasn't um but i'm hoping that one day he gets he gets to that but like i said like that was things that we talked about like we just didn't talk about just sports or just talk about you know what was on reality tv which we watched like we talked about my child all the time we talked about you know who i was talking to on the phone who he was talking to on the phone what it is we were going through in life like literally if we were down about something something bad at home happened i was able to go to him he was able to go to me so literally we talked about everything yeah and one of the things that's uh, interesting, you know, is I, I, it, and riddle me this, right? Or kind of break it down to me. But, you know, when you would talk to your son, he was like, hey, dad, you know, how many days, you know, like dad, when you coming home, what, what did that do to you mentally, oh, physically, spiritually? That would, that would really, it would, it would put me down um like i remember sometimes i would just i would just get off the phone and just sit there like this and just stare if nobody was trying to get on the phone because we had chairs near our phones and i would just be like man like i, I gotta get out of here i gotta i gotta make this right um because i i literally i talked to myself about four at least four times a week at least sometimes every day um throughout the week because of course his mother she was a full-time she was working She's working two jobs and she was a full-time student at some most of the time when i was incarcerated so sometimes i call and she couldn't answer but um she always answered and let me talk to my son and you know he would he would start to get like antsy he would ask questions and it it got to the point to where it was like hey when are you coming home and i'll be like oh soon buddy and he'd be like well when dad and i'm like you know soon and then he said well a hundred days and i was like because i didn't have an answer all i knew was i have a two to ten at two years i could start to see the board at five years they have to let me go home but i had no idea when i was coming home so i had no idea to tell him and truth be honest with you my son lives six hours away from me so he would come visit me on his breaks and i for the first two years i lied to him and told him i was working and then when I didn't make parole the second year, I said, okay, I told I said, Ashley, we gotta tell him the truth. Like, we can't, you know, and then and like life got better after we told him the truth. Like, he still would ask, and it was hard, but at least I knew that he knew where I was at. And that was that was that was one of the things that would that broke me more than anything. You know, it wasn't the daily life of prison. It wasn't the, the struggles of prison. It wasn't that. Um, I didn't miss my family because I talked to them. They came and visited me. Um, and you can say, oh, that's, that's, and I was like, no, like, 
I mean, they're adults. They understand. You know what I mean? A child, he couldn't. So it was never about like, oh my God, I want to go home back to my family, my friends. Like, nah, y'all understand. I made a mistake. I'm doing what I got to do. But my son wasn't on that level. So that that broke me more than than anything else being incarcerated. Yeah, and how did that, you know, because a lot of times we have to hit rock bottom for us to kind of charge up and, you know, change the direction of our life. How did that your son kind of asking you, hey, dad, when are you going to come back home? How did that cause you to rethink and re-strategize and change your perspective on life? Um, it wasn't it wasn't necessarily him saying that, that, you know, what? just hearing him talk to me every day, mm. just knowing that I couldn't be there every day kept me going. Um, and that's why I always made it a point to call him. Like, I never wanted him to forget about me. I never wanted him to think I didn't love him. I didn't want him to feel like I felt when like, I was young and my dad was incarcerated. Because my dad didn't call me when he was incarcerated. At least I don't remember. Um, so I always wanted to stay relevant to him. I wanted him to know that he had a dad, a dad that cared. So just the conversations, the talking to him. And sometimes I call him, we only talk for two or three minutes. Some days we talk for 15. It just depended on how he was. I mean, he was three when I got locked up. You know what I mean? Um, so just the everyday conversation with him kept my mindset at, okay, I can't lose sight of where I'm going. Or I can't get comfortable here because this isn't my this isn't my destiny. This isn't, I don't want to add more time here. And at the same time, I don't want to be forced to stay here until they have to let me go. So just the everyday conversations with him was all I needed to continue to, to push forward. Yeah, and you know, it's so fascinating because these different aspects of your life, you know, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. I think, you know, the average human being would probably have, I, I, I'm done. This is it. Like, I'm out. Um, when you think about your biological dad, and we'll talk about your stepfather a little later on, but when you think about your biological father, who he was as a man and how he carried himself, what, what are your thoughts on him? First and foremost, I love my dad um, more than life itself. And to be honest with you, I think some people may read the book and, and get a bad taste about my dad, but I ain't never stopped loving my dad. And my dad's always been my dad. Um, I've always looked at him as my dad. I never hated my dad for, you know, the things he did. I never, you know, it was more so I always, I hurt seen other kids with their dad but i never disliked my dad um now it did force me to act in a certain way but my love for my dad never wavered like still to this day like never wavered like you can't replace my dad like, i don't care who you are like my father brown dupree washington is my dad period like and that's not going to change um but the decisions he made um put a hurt inside me made me feel a certain type of way um just about myself um like and then, you know the crazy part is i probably would listen the few times my dad gave me advice i probably listened and held on to that and actually used his advice more than i did anybody in life and he was in and out of my life like 
the front that the, the like the the cash register at, at a fast food restaurant but like i just always held like that's my dad like that's never going to change and you know reading the book you know after i wrote it but i wrote it from my heart i wrote what i felt i was like i really talked about my i didn't really talk about my dad i just revealed what my dad was and and how it was but i didn't i don't want people to think anything bad about my dad because my dad can't be replaced my dad had an addiction my dad did what he did but that's still my dad like and i love him to death like you could you could let's take me off this earth for my dad right now and you know i'd be you know okay with that because that's my father um so i just that's just one thing i absolutely i read i read the book i was like man you know i don't want people to think like he's just a bad person because he's not he just had a bad circumstances and when he was there you know i cherished that mm. like, i was like the kid in the candy store like i like the few times like he came to a game i cherished it i didn't write about the book but he was at my college graduation like i don't care who showed up in my college graduation my dad was there and that you know like and that's no knock to my mother my mother's my mother that's my heart but having my dad there meant everything to me got you and when you were going through you know the justice system and the incarceration was he there like did he have words of advice i remember at one point you were like dad like what should i do then he was just like man up <laughs> yeah listen um i got in a car accident on a friday a saturday i was in the hospital for a week so that following week my dad came to get me he picked me up from football practice because i was at football practice and you know when he picked me up like we're riding the car he's like yo um like man you going to jail i was so mad at him at that point like yo like why are you like what's wrong with you like we don't even know what's going on and i wasn't even charged at the time but my dad was always you know straightforward with me my dad my dad was very nonchalant about the whole prison thing because he did it his whole life so like him talking to me about prison is like me and you being sitting here where we're comfortable at on this podcast mm. and it was weird because nobody else in my life was as comfortable with it was him and he was just talking like like oh i'm just gonna go change my clothes like i'm just gonna go down to the mall for a little bit but he but he i mean he let me know man up like that's all that's literally listen that's all you could do that's all i you know there was nothing else i could do and he was basically telling me like yo like it is what it is son like it's not the cards you were dealt it's the deck you picked up because i chose to do that you know what i mean so um yeah he was he was just real blunt about it and i mean i hated him for a little bit of court you know like i remember seeing the car like i'm sitting in the back seat like yo you really just said that like you tripping like i told my mom after he left like you know he like and mom was kind of mad but as you look back i was like yo he was letting you know like hey, it, it's go time mm, go time okay so um you know talk to us about trevor you know and trevor was kind of like uh, a symbol you know to you talk talk to us about your connection and relationship with him well trevor's a connection now on the sense that you know if trevor throws josh a pass it's a touchdown we're going six downtown branch if they call me hey but then again like trevor listen trevor trevor's probably the best teammate i've ever played with wow. he's probably the best football player that i've ever played with um he's the best person he's the best brother he's probably the best father that he is right now like trevor 
Trevor's Trevor. Like, I, it's very hard for me to explain that, but like, I was in a dark spot in college, addiction-wise, but I still watched Trevor. Like, if I was drunk and I dropped the pass, like, Trevor could come over and me and be like, yo, you messed up my stats. Uh, we missed the touchdown. Yo, he would just come come over to me, tap me, say, I'm coming back to you. Two series later, we're hooking up for a touchdown because he never lost faith in me. And um, I remember one good lesson I learned about Trevor. It was a Monday. We're off on Mondays. We didn't practice football on Mondays. We practiced Sunday was up on Mondays. And I was walking through the football offices and Trevor was watching film. And I said, yo, what you doing? And his response to me was, I'm watching film so you don't have to. Ooh, that's deep. And that, that, that turned my whole mindset. Like that single quote Trevor said to me made me the coach that I was. And I do believe that I was a good coach. Um, I'm not saying that, you know, cocky, you know, or just arrogant. I'm saying I'm with confidence and I believe it. Um, but I started to go watch film with Trevor on Mondays because like, no, you don't watch it for me, but you're telling, you're showing me this is what I have to do to be a better player. So then Trevor was a very religious person. And he was the first person to allow me to see it was okay to be a Christian and an athlete. Mm. I would meet with Trevor and um, his brother and one other football player, just four of us with two with two adults. And we would do Bible study at, at the bagel shop um, every Tuesday. So my relationship with Trevor grew, you know, um, physically on the football field, in the weight room. You know, we sweat blood, sweat and tears to spiritually like and the bagel shop to where if I you know, had a question, I could text him. Um, I remember when I was in an accident, his entire family reached out. Um, I've only been back to, to Edinburgh one time, and that was to watch his little brother play. Um, like his whole family is just, they're just amazing people. And Trevor just showed me so many lessons in life just by me watching. So that's why I say you have to be, you have to be careful how you carry yourself every day because you never know who's watching. For, for two and a half years, I watched Trevor every day. He didn't even know it. Outside of us being the friends that we were, like, and now, like, when I look back and there's things in life come, I, I literally look back and like, okay, how would have Trevor handled this situation? Because he's that, he was that much of a role model to me. And the first person that I feel like sports wise that I could look up to, like everybody in sports wise was they party with me. They, you know, they wanted to, you know, hang with me. They, they, you know, I was the driver back in the day, you know, I had the car, but Trevor was just, he just set himself, I wouldn't say above, he just separated himself. And he wanted to be the he wanted to be the man he is today. That's why he had a small scene with the Jaguars and the Eagles. And now he's been playing in the CFL, the Canadian Football League, for this time because he set himself apart. And he was a great teammate, a great friend. He's he's my brother. Like, um, and I love him to death. Um, and he just that's why he was included. And then you read the book, like there there's a small spot for Trevor that's probably not there for anybody else. But Trevor literally, he helped me. He helped me see a new me when I was ready to see it because I went back and looked over everything that he had taught me and, you know, was just teaching me by actions. That That's powerful. And what what were some of the, the key characteristics from Trevor that uh, you embody today or you would like to teach to your son or the next generation or even to an audience or when you have a speaking engagement? First, you got to be a fighter that... Every day is a fight. You know, you're going to get up and you, I believe Trevor attacked the day. Trevor attacked the day with a strategy. 
He leveraged his positive mindset, his positive thoughts, just like the book. Trevor was a very obedient to who he was. He showed great patience with everybody around him. And I believe he evolved over life. Slope. That's simple. Like Trevor, Trevor, everything that is in a slope uh, concept is, I feel like, embodies Trevor. Um, he's trustworthy. He's respectful. He's honest. He's a hard worker. Um, he, he's, I mean, I'm sorry that I'm hyping him up like this, but to me, that's who he was um, as a teammate and as a friend. And, you know, if there was a perfect example, perfect guy that I would say, son, go mimic yourself under, it'd be Trevor. Like I would trust that, listen, if you could follow somebody's life, son, go follow his. And I know that my son would be the best person that that he could be. He, Trevor used to always tell me, and, and I carry this, you know, with people is what I worked at FedEx as a supervisor, as a football coach, as a track coach, as a basketball coach. Every day is an opportunity to get better. What are you going to do to get better? So, the, like, all of that came from Trevor. Like, Trevor was just a huge staple in my life. Yeah, nah, definitely. And I can even feel you know the vibe just from talking to you how much of an impact he had on your uh mindset and it is awesome to hear how you were able to um learn from him and extract those key values and even talking about you know the strategy you have o for uh, obedience uh what that's such a powerful word and i feel like few people Oh, when we think of obedience, people think like, oh, you're weak, you know, you're sussy, you're weak, like, shut up, man, you want to obey, man, like, nah, you want to do your own thing, like, don't obey, like, talk to us about obedience. Well, I, you know, and I talked to a couple people, because there was a couple other words that I, I could have used um, in that section, than just obedient, because, you know, like, it, people do think of submit and such like that or um religiously but you know it's really just to comply or comply with something and it's like okay but listen we're looking to change ourselves so if you can't become obedient to who you are and who you're trying to change to be you know and you know the the request that you make for yourself to you know stay to to stay obedient to if you if you can't do that you you don't want to change so that's why i wasn't i wasn't hesitant or scared to use it um i just wanted to see if people could understand what i meant with obedient but yeah i just feel like it was it was okay because just submit to yourself like you're submitting to to your change like you know your triggers you know what you like and what you don't like you know who you need to cut off and who you and you can't but be obedient in that you know be willing you know take control over you and your situation and be obedient to the journey be obedient to leveraging your mind to you know be obedient that when i wake up today it's like oh my god it's raining today i don't feel like going to work no oh hey listen man i gotta go hey it's one day let me let me be better today let me be the best version of me let me continue to leverage my thoughts my words so that i can feel positive let me, you know, be, stay committed to this, this steady plan. I have to listen. In order for me to lose weight, I got to work out twice a day. I got to be obedient to that. That That's my strategy. In order for me to, to come out of this stressful situation, I have to, I have to 
see or write down three things that I did today that makes me feel better. I have to be obedient today. I can't just put it aside and not write it down. It's a part of the strategy. Writing it down is leveraging my mind to understanding where I'm going. Obedience is just living it, is doing what I have to do and staying committed. So I just think obedience was the word that I just, it was the word that I felt was best for me um, because it's, it's showing you what I did. Um, I'm just hoping that you can take the twos for yourself and just tap in and just giving you a blueprint of changing your decision, getting through hard times, um, understanding that you are worthy. Like anything that you really want to accomplish in conquering life, slope will get you through. Amen. Let's do it, man. Nah, I'm, I'm, I'm excited. And um, lo looking back or like going to like those really difficult moments of realization, when, when you realize that, you know, this man was gone because of your actions, how did that first hit you? Like, was it almost like a disbelief and then it slowly like settled in and you were like, yo, what in the world happened? Or The first time I heard it, I I, I, I wished that I had died. I, I, I cried out to, I literally, I cried. Um, and I asked God, why did he leave me here? At the time he didn't answer, um, but I knew that I was here. Um, and then it was, I, I spent a lot of time, honestly, I spent a majority of all of my time being out on bond at the moment that I heard it. And so probably the day that they gave me a flat where I didn't make parole the first time, I spent a lot of my time trying to live for their family's approval. And that's the first time in life I felt that I lived for somebody else's approval. And it was very hard. Um, because I didn't know how to tap in. I didn't know how to get them past the hurt, the anger, the sorrow, the grief, all of that, you know, like I caused so much of that, all of that. And, but who was I to dictate how they felt? Um, so I, I went through a part of why, why me, why didn't I go to, okay, I have to, I have to get there. That was really what I lived through from the moment I heard it to the point to where I decided to listen, um, I'm not apologizing you know, and living for somebody else's forgiveness. But I am going to show you in my actions that I truly am sorry, that what I talk is not just lip service. It's not, I'm not doing this just to be seen. I'm doing this because I care. I'm doing this because I live through the depression, the suicidal thoughts, the addiction, the hurt. I was in a, in a cell for 21 out of 24 hours a day. Um, I, you know, picked up the phone and heard my son say, you know, when are you going to be home? I lived that. So it is my duty to do what I'm doing now, but I do that. And I hope that one day that they forgive me and that it could change. But I definitely went through the, the why me's to, oh my God, can you please forgive me? It has to be, you know, to I'm sorry and let's move on with life, but let's make someone else's life better. Let's bring awareness. Let's heal people. Let's help people with what happened. Yeah. And, you know, that's a great question that you even asked earlier. You know, when you said that, God, why didn't you just let me also pass away too when this whole situation happened? When, when you... You know, because being a Christian is really interesting. And I think even talking to you, it becomes more interesting because what you've gone through as a Christian then revalidates your own strengthening or connection with God. So what, what does God mean to you uh, now? And how did that evolve over the course of this journey? 
God is my life, my breath, my everything. I, I've been like, without him, I, I'm nothing. Um, I mean that. I believe that. I live that. Um, I've always listened. I, I, we didn't, I didn't talk about a lot, but I grew up in a church. I always knew Christ. I always knew God. I was always a believer. Um, I was the type of kid that I get out of football practice and I'm driving straight to choir practice or I'm driving straight to, you know, mommy practice. Like I was always involved in the church. I knew Christ. Christ got me through the nine months where I was really suffering in depression and trying to take medication to sleep and trying to, you know, be in the right mindset when I was at work. But it was when I really tapped into the Holy Spirit and submitted and committed to growth. I studied the Bible for 200 days straight for 40 minutes a day, uninterrupted. Um, and like, that's when my spiritual awakening went to a whole nother level. Um, and I, I saw things. Um, I talked about some things with Banks, but Banks isn't, Banks isn't very religious. Um, or is just a Christian? He uh, he has a family, but listen, when I would go to banks with, with my different type of ideas and things, like seeing him, like his eyes light up, and just seeing him, um, just allow me to talk about things. Like I knew that I was going somewhere with it, and I knew that God was using that circumstance to make me a better person, a different person, and I knew that He was bringing out who I was destined to be. I was so stuck at being slope. I was learning who Josh was through Christ. So wow. that's why I just, I mean, I, I give, I give all honor to him. Um, and I know it's hard to do that because of the, the platform that I'm in sometimes with schools, you know, it's kind of an iffy thing, but without him, nothing is possible. And I know that he opens the doors. He said, talks about him in revelations and I believe it. And, um, I believe your gift will make room for you. It has. Um, I believe that he instilled purpose in me. He put this purpose in me. He opened the doors. I didn't create none of this. All of this was created when I was in prison. Now, what prisoner do you know that can create something that's going to be a book that allows me to travel to speak? I've spoken, you know, at Black Lives Matters. I've spoken to colleges. I've spoken to college classrooms, college sports, high schools, junior highs. Like, a prisoner? Nah, that that's that, that that's all God, and He opened the door, and He's allowed it to overflow with overflowing blessings and water. Um, and I give honor to Him for that. Wow! And then, um, you know, so going through all of this, and then having uh, Ashley, your, your significant other at that time, kind of uh, taking care, you know, son, and going to jobs. How did that? affect your relationship with her and how has it transformed today i've talked about in the book that acid was the glue that held everything together and the meaning with that without acid pushing the number five i wouldn't have any access to my son there wasn't a time where listen ashley ashley could have been at work ashley could have been in class ashley could have been out to dinner she, hey i'm at dinner like it was never she she showed me the woman that she was, the mother that she was, the friend that she was when I was incarcerated. Um, because we weren't exactly in the greatest of places when I went to prison, but you wouldn't have told you wouldn't be able to tell that from the time I went in there. Um, I believe that I believe prison changed my life, but it also changed my relationship with her. Um I honestly felt more of a parent in prison dealing with her than sometimes when I was when I was out but we were very young and immature and you know we we had our moments 
but prison brought us together to be great co-parents and you know to get along and that's just it revealed prison reveals so much of each other to us while i was incarcerated because it was like something that we had to work through and it literally like prison prison made life being a co-parent so much better from what we went through with that wow that that's amazing and now uh when you and her obviously you know your significant other kind of you know look back at the past you know what are some things that come to your mind in terms of like how she even the, the what she went through with you because the one of the you have e you know i'm kind of going to skip a little bit but you have e for, for evolve but how did that kind of evolve her and even strengthen the relationship that you have with her as time went on well i i think i honestly listen i took ashley through hell ashley was with me at the the gutter part of life <laughs> like the drunken nights, you know, the disappearing acts, the arguments. Um, but I think prison helped Ashley and me both realize how important we were as parents in our individual individual roles. Um, so over time, we evolved to not hate each other or not even necessarily hate each other, but understand that in everything, Junior comes first. Wow. And, we, and I didn't say like, and, you know, he may not agree with what I'm going to say, but at the beginning times, I, I think that she, for the most part, puts Junior first, but we were just very young and immature. So there were just some things that we did that probably wasn't best for Junior, but Junior was never in harm's way with either one of us. It was just that, you know, we had a lot of anger, a lot of disputes back and forth. And we kind of sometimes let that overshadow us as the, as the, to, to hurt our ability to co-parent. So the, the evolving just came over time of understanding like how important Ashley is to Junior, how important I am to Junior. Because what was crazy, the very first day I got incarcerated, my son was four years old. And um, I went to court like nine o'clock in the morning. So by one o'clock, I was already booked in, in jail, sitting there. And that same night, Junior was three and was asking Ashley to speak to his dad. And at that point, there was no way she could get a hold of me. So from the very beginning of my incarceration, Junior, as the child, made it a very aware, like, hey, I still need daddy. Hey, I still need mommy. And it was the first time where he asked for daddy and she wasn't able to have access to me. Where when we had access for three years, we were too much, you know, at each other's head to realize that what we could be doing instead of what we were doing wow wow that's powerful uh patience p for patience and i feel like patience is one of those things that nowadays people do not have patience at all people want that thing right now people want the promotion you know it's like the world is moving quicker and quicker but yet you were able to kind of you know talk about patience and i think that's something that you've had to embody you know, in your journey, but why, why is patience so important to you? And then how do you think to us, we should apply or think about patience in our day-to-day -day life? Most things in life we want, we can't accomplish on our own. So we're going to have to wait on somebody else. Or we're going to have to wait on something to happen. And at the, so, I mean, and that could be as simple as 
you want to purchase my book, but you want to get in and read it before we have this talk. Well, you could essentially bog yourself down, like, you know, tripping on, man, how am I going to get this done? How am I going to read this? It's patience. Like we, even though we go to, to Burger King, you know, as soon as we order, it's not popped out. We still got to drive to drive. We still got to pay. We still, and, and that's fast food. And it still takes patience. And I just feel like what everything in life takes patience. And I know somebody close to me told me one day was if you conquer patience, you can conquer the world. Well, the only reason why I was able to make it through my incarceration, because I began to use patience. I began to stop trying to rush my, you know, release date, but rather grow to the point to where when I was ready to be released, I was the person that I needed to be. So I just feel like sometimes we, most all times, we just need to slow down and enjoy the ride. Celebrate your small wins. As I told you before, when you strategize, sometimes these, these goals that we have may start in January, but may end in September. But if I celebrate January 31st, hey, I, I wrote the first three chapters or, you know, February 26th, Hey, I'm two steps closer. If I celebrate the small, the small wins, it would help your patience. It will keep you persistent. If you if you take patience and take persistence and put them together, it makes it so much easier. So we just hear patience. It's like, oh my God, like I gotta wait or it's gonna take too long. But if I'm just persistent with the with the little things inside of the journey, patience isn't as bad as what people think it is but it's very important and i just believe that if you can conquer that then any goal that you have rather big or small that you're accomplishing whatever change you want to make in life whatever depression you're in whatever state of suicidal thoughts you're in if you could just slow down and have the patience to to just will your way through it that's where the win is the win is not at the end the win is enjoying the journey inside and that is wow that, that's so deep and multi-faceted thank you for that and i wanted to bring up this mom you know and i feel like as males you know our relationship to our moms are very important but also complicated because you know we're males they're females but at the same time a lot of times throughout your book you wrote about the the mom's uh unselfish love and patience and things of that nature Talk to us about how that journey evolved from first, you know, you were kind of rebellious as a kid, but then boom, you know, this happens and how that impacted her and her outlook in life and her repertoire review. And then now towards the later half, you know, after everything is, you know, got out, job, you're speaking, back family, how she has also evolved too as well. Well, I never want people to look at this book and think my mom was a bad mom or she didn't watch over me. Um, I grew up, <laughs> excuse me, literally in a town and in a time where kids move freely. Like I, I lived in a town to where I could fall asleep with my front door open and my screen door shut and I'd be completely fine. Wow. Like there's nothing to worry about. So like as parents, all of us, all of our parents allowed us to move a little freely than most, you know, people. I used to always say if I grew up anywhere other than this small area in Shepherdstown, West Virginia, I'd have been dead or in prison sooner because of the things that I did. But my my mother never really knew because like I really wasn't getting in trouble. You know what I mean? And 
I was a single, uh, my mother was a single mom up until I want to say maybe um, probably 19, 11, 12. So like my mother really was like my best friend. And we had that brother sister relationship more than uh, son and mother type. And, you know, so when I was, you know, you know, partying, doing my thing, like I really didn't pay attention to like third. I mean, I remember there now, like, you know, the worry, like this is when I was almost a full-blown adult like I wasn't full-blown but 17 18 years old you know when I'm really starting to party you can see I remember my mom the worry on my mom's face but at the time I didn't know it was worried I was so into being slow being the athlete and partying that I, I didn't see it but when I got in an accident and you know it was the very first time where life slowed down and I could really see my mother hurting and I was like yo that was the face she was making when you know I was leaving out the house to go to the party like my mother had been worrying about me but I didn't know because I was too busy just being slow um and then just you know she struggled my mother my mother mentally struggled while I was incarcerated but my mother's so strong like we never talked about it she never told me she was hurting she never she never worried me with her with her stress her worries her depression um I didn't really learn how much she struggled until I got out but now it's like joyous whenever we see each other um she goes along the journey she's probably my biggest supporter like anything that like I post anything she's gonna like anything that I like podcasts I'm on she watches um you know, we talk about the book and me and my mom don't have, it's crazy. We don't have this uh, emotional connection. Like we're real like solid with each other. Um, so like, I don't have those emotional mom. My book is almost done. But if like, yo mom, my book's done. And she'd be like, well, when's it, you know, but like, that's our love language. Like that's how, you know, we were, but she, I, like, honestly, like when I got out, I feel like she started to enjoy life more. And the more she sees me going down the right path and doing stuff, you know that i said that i was going to do when i was incarcerated because of course she got in the background man he gonna get out and start tripping again you know a lot of people thought that but she's grown she's evolved she has a more understanding on life and and who i was she's learning she's gonna learn who i was in this book believe that like there are some things that she's gonna read in this book that she's gonna learn for the first time but she's she's grown with me throughout this journey wow that, that that's super powerful and you know as we start you know to wrap up you know, I wanted to talk uh, your, your stepdad and kind of like some of the stories you put in the book, like him telling you to, hey, go grab me a beer, go buy this. And kind of like you, you, you didn't really like accept him, you know, like, hey, who's this dude? Kind of like the sparks, but kind of talk to us about how he made an impact in your life and kind of like your thoughts towards him and how it's evolved over time. Well, first I told you, we talked about my dad and I told you what he meant to me and what means to me and how nobody could ever replace him and how my dad may not been there, but I never hated my dad. You know, um, I always wanted my dad there. And when he came in, he was like, it was a block to my dad getting back, you know? So it's like, nah, fool, you got to go. Cause like mom and dad gonna go back together. <laughs> I want my dad. So yeah. for a while there, um, I, I hated him. I tried everything that I could to get him to leave. And then, you know, I remember I packed my bags up one day, put everything in a, in a trash bag, walked on my aunt's. Um, and, you know, we had a heart to heart, you know, like, you know, he cares, you know, like he's not going anywhere. And then that's when I started accepting him and, you know, we became cool and I started, you know, we connected through baseball um, because he was a baseball pitcher and I was involved in baseball. He started teaching me some things. And then, you know, he didn't mean anything by it, but 
he would literally just be sitting there watching TV and we'd be sitting there and he'd be like, yo, grab me a beer. And I would go grab the beer. And, you know, or, you know, I'd be get up to go get something to drink. He'd be like, hey, grab me, you know, a beer. I'll watch take a shot. And it just became like something that like I was enticed to try. And then that's when at 12, I walked to junior high, I mean, elementary that day. And I decided to grab that beer out the refrigerator and try it. And then I got away with it. And that's just when I started to drink, you know, on my way to school. It started with, you know, just simple, Joshua, grab a beer, go grab a beer. And then just like, you know, you're putting something in my head that you don't even know is manifesting. And then it just caused me. And he had so much fun when he drank. And we were cool, you know, like, I feel like our... Like because I took I hate him so much, I feel like I enjoyed him more when he was drunk. Mm. And like, that's where we started connecting. And then I was getting this beer, and it was like, okay, well, let me try this beer. And then it, just from there, it just it just took off. Wow. That's 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 interesting. Um, your son, you know, he's he's quite young, but you know, as time grows older, you know, and his reasoning faculties develop and he thinks about everything that you've been through. I think it's awesome that he's get he's got to see you heal. He's got to see you strengthen. He's got to see your resolve because it's going to help him be such an extraordinary human being in terms of like, man, I, I saw my dad go through all of this, but he came out better. He he's getting better and better as time goes on. How do you um hawk life into him? Like how do you set the example for him so that he doesn't have to repeat the generation or what you went through or what your dad went through how do you how do you break those chains okay prior to my accident my son's never seen me drink ever after my accident he's obviously never seen me drink um so i started by setting the example like i'm not going to let him see something and think that that's okay um i've ever since i told you that um for the first year i lied to him and told him that i was you know in in at work because i thought i was gonna make first pro so like I thought, okay, we can gut two years, but I've always been open and transparent with him. I've always given him the liberty. Like my son can ask me any question he wants about anything that I've been through, what I'm going through. So nothing is a surprise to him. So like once I was in jail, he would ask, you know, I didn't say, hey, I killed somebody. I was like, hey, I fell asleep. I hurt somebody because he was just too young at that point to handle that. But as he gets older, <laughs> he asks things. And so I just feel like just you know, living, you know, living daily, let him see and how his dad lives. Is, that's the example because I seen people live another way and that's what I wanted to do. So I feel like my best way is to live it and let him see it. But also I don't sugarcoat or hide nothing. And he's comfortable to come ask me anything that he wants. Um, now I might be like, yo, for real, like we ain't talking about that. You know, there's some things that you don't, you don't need to talk to your kids about, but um, the things that are appropriate and the things I feel is going to help him. He, I'm an open book. He can ask me anything. I'm, and the answer, you know, will be from love and it'll be, you know, from my heart. And I just feel like that's just the best way to be with him because he, he's, man, he, he has, this, he asks so many questions. So like his mind is always turning. He worries sometimes and I can still tell, and I'm almost three years out. Like, oh my gosh, he's going to go back. Like he, he's scared to lose me. Wow. And I know that, you know, and that's, that's my push now. Like before I was talking to him now, it's like, I know he, how he feels about losing me. So, um, but he vocalizes that. So it helps me to continue to you know, reinforce, Hey, I'm going to be here. Wow. that That's powerful, man. And, you know, we basically reached, you know, the end of the podcast, you know, is there, is there anything that, you know, you, you want to say to the audience, uh, feel free, you know, links, the book, you know, pr- 
the, the floor is yours. Um, I just want to tell anybody out there that that's struggling with depression, suicide, any any of those strongholds in life that even in the midst of your hurt of your grief, man, there there's a line. You 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 have to look up and find it. You have to you have to get with like-minded people. Like this journey is not meant to be traveled alone. And when you connect with those like-minded people, um, listen to the message. Not, not always the messenger, the message, because there's something inside of it for you. But you have to be open and willing to um, to come out of it. A lot of us get complacent with the hurt. We get complacent with the pain, thinking that's who we are, and we're not. We're not meant to be that. We're not meant to be engulfed with that pain, and that's why there is a way out. And I encourage you to find it. If you if you want to speak to me, you can find me on Facebook as Josh brown senior i'm on um instagram at, at josh brown senior you can find me at www.joshdbrown.com my book you can purchase my book prison to purpose my road to redemption your um your road to triumph uh, on the same web page www.joshbrown.com click on new book and purchase it um if you guys need any help with anything you'd like me to speak you can you can reach me on those platforms facebook instagram on my website and i'll be happy to help you that's what i'm here for that's what i'm um that's my purpose and that's why i'm here today and i'm so thankful that you've given me this opportunity to um to share this platform with you and i look forward to uh, hearing from you guys because i know somebody's out there that is hurting and they're looking and um it's time so just reach out and let's connect and, and let, let's get through this because you i want you to win in life and you deserve to win in life definitely man thank you for you know the heartfelt message and, and thank you you know for being so open and vulnerable to, to sharing your story and what you learned and the strategies and the emotions and impact because I love the fact that you're transmutating, you know, what people would say, oh man, that's the end, but you're using it as a torchlight. You're using it as a half finder, path blazer to kind of, you know, light a hopes in, in, in people and, you know, show them hey look you you want to go down this road you don't want to go down that one so you know super 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 appreciated too as well i will i'm so thankful and i look forward to connecting with you and and working with you and you know we're game changers and that's what we're going to be in this world and i, I wish you the best of luck in your journey with game changers i know you're going to come out of that thing you know blazing as you already are you know you got your podcast and you're already moving in direction and you know, being that speaker that you desire to be. So I look forward to watching your story and watching you grow as well. Now, I, th I thank God because, you know, you only get to live life once. So, you know, and I think that meeting amazing people just like yourself and, and being able to speak and share and just be real. You know, everybody has gone through something in life, you know. So, um, and at the end of the day, you know, you speaking the truth is not detracting. It's, it's an addition to everybody. I appreciate that. All right, my masterminders. Until next time. Me and Josh, we're going to chop it up for a little bit, but y'all got to go. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right.
Hey, I appreciate you for listening to the Mastermind Your Life podcast. Again, don't forget to follow me on Instagram, T-O-L-U dot O-W-O-Y-E-M-I. And blow up my inbox, man. I need to hear your suggestions, feedback, people I need to interview next, topics I need to cover. Again, I appreciate all y'all. And while you're at it, you might as well go to Apple and drop that review. Let's get it. Rah.